I had a young man tell me last night, awesome, he wasn't here last week, you're in the book of James, I love the book of James. You know how much a pastor loves when he hears a 20-some-year-old say, I love the book of James, or anything in the Bible, makes him very happy. And so today we're coming to our second sermon as we look at the book of James together. And remember, I won't, I won't number them every week, but it's, it's, it's significant that it's second because it's tied to the first. This book, let me give you a little tiny review. This book helps us, the book of James, helps us bring balance into our lives. That's why we're doing it. It's kind of doing, it's kind of showing us in a practical way. James is a really practical guy. A practical way how to apply the faith that we have in Christ in very real life situations. This book kind of brings us balance. It kind of ties together um, a life of being um, alone with God. And remember, I think I told you, James was known. You know what, what James' nickname was in, in history in his books? Anybody know what, his, what James' nickname was? Old Camel Knees. I'm reading that in seminary. I'm like, what? Old Camel Knees. It was a pro- comment. Because they said he spent, and I don't know if it's true or not, because there's all kinds of things attributed to James that is embellishment in church history. Um, not biblical, not Bible, but church history. But they, they think it's probably accurate that he prayed so much in the temple that his knees had big calluses on him, and they referred to him as old camel knees. So here's a guy who spent a ton of time in prayer, but he balances off um, this life of being alone with God with the life of living out his Christianity in the real world. And that's the balance we seek for. That God, on purpose, put us where we are. We're going to be alone with Him. The reason we're alone with Him, one of the reasons we're alone with Him, we get to know Him and we hear His heart. And His heart says, now help reach the people around me that I died for. That makes sense? So James is going to bring balance into our lives. See, and James, we can listen to him. You say, well, why would I want to listen to this guy? What's he got to tell me? This is a guy that we should listen to. He knows what he's talking about because he was the primary leader in the church in Jerusalem which was, I can't imagine, a greater challenge in the world. This would be worse than pastoring a church in Springfield, Missouri, you know, the headquarters of the Assemblies of God. This would be harder, Wapaka, the headquarters of, of, of our district. He's there with all the people, everything's starting there, but he's at a time of total chaos. He led the church that was completely oppressed. Everybody hated Christians at that time because Jews hated them because they thought that they were traitors, that they were, um, they were um, you know, really going against God. The, the non-religious people thought, hey, you say that, that your God is greater than Rome and Caesar. So every, they were oppressed. They hated them. A few years after this, they literally were burning Christians alive at the stake uh, in the Colosseum. You know, and using them, Nero was using them for sport, you know, to, to, to kill Christians. It was acceptable. They were oppressed. Um, it was the, the um, a town in complete political turmoil. You think that, that you know, Trump, non-Trump is, is tumultuous. They had complete political turmoil. Jerusalem was dominated by Rome, and, and the, the Jews wanted to overthrow that. So there was literally like civil war going on. They wanted to see that overthrown. And there was incredible economic challenges. As a matter of fact, a number of the New Testament books written back about Jerusalem was people encouraging Paul, the Apostle Paul, to make sure he received an offering wherever he went to the starving Christians in Jerusalem. So this guy is navigating this impossible situation, and it's, then that's, that pastor then writes a letter on how to balance this life out of being with God and being in the world. How do we do this? And... Um, he writes them to these, to the, you know, I'm sure to the people in that city, but it says specifically to the Christians that are scattered all around the different cities. 
And the people who are scattered the furthest at this point, 2,000 years later, is you and me. So he's writing to us. And he begins this letter, and we looked at this last week, in, a, in a, I think in a kind of a, an amazing way. Uh, he never went to Dale, Carnegie, Dale Carnegie's class, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He flunked if he did because he does exactly the opposite. He starts by writing something that seems ridiculous if it's misunderstood. Um, He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Be happy when the bottom falls out, is what he's saying. You know, um, he's surely not a health and prosperity preacher preaching a health and prosperity message to those who are living under the oppression and poverty that, that they were at that time. But we found last week that James wasn't crazy at all When he wrote this, he wasn't crazy because he continues on to explain how trials can have a positive outcome. That trials can lead to what he said is endurance, and endurance can lead to spiritual maturity. So one can look past a trial, he says, with joy, knowing that something good, which is maturity and wholeness, can result from that difficulty. And that's what we looked up last week. And if you want to know more about that, go on our website, listen to the podcast, and, and you'll find what God has to say about that. Or let's just say what I had to say about it. My best I could figure out what God was saying from his word. Now today, we're going to look at what James adds to that thought. And that's why I had to give an introduction, because what we have to understand is he continues on with the thought in the next section we're going to read. So grab your Bibles, open the book of James, and we're going, to read, we're going to reread verses 2 through 4, which was last week, and then we're going to continue reading all the way to verse 8. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-binded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, this is what I want you to notice first. We'll stop right there. I want you to notice a connection here. He says, first of all, You'll be complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about going through trials. You'll be complete and lacking in nothing. But then it was, what he says here, but if you do lack. So he's saying, okay, you should, your goal is to be complete, lacking in nothing. But if you lack wisdom. What James is doing, he's connecting, continuing on with this thought here. His teaching on wisdom that we're going to look at today is tied to what he has just taught us about going through trials and the ability to have joy because we see past the trials. And this is really important to understand as we look at what he says about wisdom. Because we need to remember that he is talking about how Christians can live during times of difficulty. The overarching theme that James is addressing is how we as Christians live well during times of mistreatment, and lack, and confusion. And he taught us in the prior verses that we can have joy during those times if we have what? The right perspective. We see the end game, the good that can come from walking through difficulty. And James ends his thought in verse 4 by saying one can grow during difficulty and can actually become, he says, 
perfect, which means complete or whole, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's this idea of wholeness and spiritual maturity. And then based on that, he then adds verse 5 and the following verse. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and he goes on to explain it. James here is continuing on with this idea of perspective during difficulties. And this is what he's primarily saying. He's saying the right perspective can bring joy. But if you lack wisdom, you can't have a right perspective during trials. And therefore, you'll never come to joy. That maturity, or wisdom rather, is part of... Of maturity, saying you need to become mature to find joy in trials, but you need wisdom to do that because wisdom is part of maturity. And he says this, and if you lack wisdom, you will lack the perspective necessary to find joy in difficulty. Now let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, understand this, what wisdom is and what wisdom is, is not. Wisdom is not knowledge. We live in a Western world that primarily says that wisdom is knowledge. So we think the wisest people are the people who know the most stuff. Well, that's not the way God sees it, and it's not the way James sees it. Wisdom is not knowledge. James is not saying that to be mature, you must possess great knowledge. In fact, wisdom and knowledge are not necessarily linked together. There are very many knowledgeable, very educated people who clearly lack wisdom. And there are many people who don't possess a lot of knowledge through education, but they are very wise. Did anybody see on Facebook this week, um, it was a man doing a commencement speech and he said, what I learned from a third grade dropout. Anybody see that? A bunch of you saw that. Did you watch it? It was brilliant. I expect Brett's in in a public speeching speaking class, and I said, watch that. It's the best public speaking thing you'll ever see. He did a phenomenal job. He's basically saying this guy with multiple degrees and PhDs is saying the wisest man I ever know is my dad, and my dad is a third-grade dropout. And uh, so look at it on the website. That's what, that's what we have to understand here, uh, not on a website, on, on Facebook. There are many people who don't possess a lot of knowledge, meaning a lot of they don't know a, maybe a ton of stuff about obscure things. Maybe they don't have a ton of education, but they are very wise people. And the reason this is important is because of what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't knowledge, but what is wisdom? And understand this. Get this today, because this will change your life if you don't know it. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective and then use that knowledge accordingly. What is wisdom? You say somebody's wise. What is James says is wise. Wisdom, a wise person, is a person who has the ability to see life from God's perspective and then use that perspective or that knowledge accordingly. Wisdom goes beyond human knowledge. It goes beyond facts and figures. Wisdom is seeing the world or a situation from God's vantage point and then acting according to the way God would want us to act. Wisdom is a God thing. No God, no wisdom. God is where wisdom comes from. That's why James could say what he says here. If you lack wisdom, what's he say? Get another degree? Is that what he said? If you lack wisdom, simply ask God for it, and he will give it to you generously. 
Why? Because wisdom is from God. Now, related to this, I'm going to say something, and I can't prove what I'm going to say, but I believe it's the truth of what's going on here, and it's this. I think the reason that James adds this part about wisdom here when he's talking about joy in trials or joy resulting from trials by having the right perspective. The reason I think James adds this about wisdom here tied to having a right perspective so one can live well in times of trouble is because he had lived it both ways in his life. Let me explain what I mean. Remember who James is. We see a name. Who's James? What was his history? James, we saw last week, is the half-brother of Jesus. And Scripture tells us, Scripture pre, pre-death and resurrection of Jesus, Scripture's not flattering towards James. Matter of fact, it makes it very clear in the New Testament that James, the half-brother of Jesus, never even believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, there was a point in Jesus' ministry where James and the rest of his family tried to, when Jesus was ministering, go to Jesus and bring him home. And you remember why? They thought he was getting a bit crazy. James, Jesus' half-brother James is looking at Jesus and saying, you're a little bit nuts thinking that you're the Messiah. He doesn't believe anything. James had knowledge, right? He had all the facts and figures about Jesus. He grew up in the same house as Jesus. He must have heard the stories from mom and dad about his miraculous birth. The wise men and the shepherds and the angels singing. Maybe I'm not sure, but maybe they already had kids' Christmas programs. I'm probably not, but, you know, little kids dropping up like shepherds and, and sheep, you know. And, and he had heard all the stories, just amazing stories about Jesus. And he must have seen Jesus as, as he grew up. And we don't know how, but Jesus would have had to be different. Some people have stories about he makes a dove out of clay and it flies away. I don't buy that. But I buy this. He didn't have a sin nature. Only three people on planet were ever born without a sin nature, Jesus and Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve blew it quickly. Jesus lived his whole life perfectly. So he had to live somehow. Can you imagine a brother or a sister in your house growing up and they never had a sin nature so they never acted improperly? They could be angry at not sin. You know, so we don't know how that would work. But, but that would be different. I have a sin nature, and people know it in my house because I'm selfish. Jesus would have never been selfish. So, so James had grew up with Jesus. He had all the knowledge in the world about Jesus, more knowledge than most anybody. Only maybe the ones that more would be Mary, his mother, because the angel spoke directly to her. But he never believed that Jesus was said, who he said he was to a point. But then something happened. His crazy half-brother, who said he was God's son, was arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. And he still didn't believe. But the story doesn't stop there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and Scripture says something very interesting about James. Jesus told the people that, that saw him when he appeared... Go tell the disciples and James. James wasn't a believer. He says, go tell my followers and James. And this is who he's talking about. His resurrected half-brother rose from the dead and appeared 
to him. And guess what happened? He believed. That's what happened. He had all the knowledge in the world before. But now he has wisdom. Friends, that's wisdom. It's having knowledge, certainly. I'm not, we're not, the Bible's not anti-knowledge. It's having knowledge, certainly, but it's seeing the knowledge from God's perspective. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective and then use that knowledge accordingly. And that's surely what James did. From that point on, James clearly used his knowledge properly, accordingly. What did he do? He left his carpenter business. He must have been a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. He would have been trained as a carpenter. He left his carpentry business and becomes a proclaimer of the truth and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is what he told everybody. Jesus, my, my half-brother, is Lord and Savior. So he spent the rest of his life doing. And here's, here is James' point. You will never be able to walk through difficulty well without God's perspective, without wisdom. That's what he's getting at in this section of the book of James. You will never be able to walk through difficulty well without God's perspective, without wisdom. And I think he learned it through experience. Now there's a, an old poem that I came across that, that puts us into a word picture that I think can really help us understand this. And this is what I want you to do. Humor me for a minute. Close your eyes. The author of this poem is unknown, but I want you to do your best to picture what the author writes about in this poem. Listen to what it says. It says, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Nor till the loom, not till the loom is silent, and the shutters, shuttles cease to fly, shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Can you picture it? Look at me. Can you picture it in your mind? Your life is like a tapestry that's being woven by God. He sees the, the top. He sees the big picture. And often we only see the dark threads or the back side. But wisdom knows. Wisdom knows that our good God always has a good purpose and sees past pain and with joy knows the Lord is creating something beautiful that might not be evident until long in the future. Wisdom sees from God's perspective. Wisdom knows God is out for your good. So what's James say? As the one who didn't believe and had all the knowledge in the past, he says, if you lack wisdom, if you lack perspective, how does God see your life situation, he doesn't say read a book. He says, ask. 
Ask, not your pastor, ask God. And God will give you the wisdom you need. And look what it says here. Look what it says will happen. Our always generous God will give you wisdom and perspective that you ask. And this it says, and he never gets tired of you asking and asking and asking again. It says he gives without reproach. He doesn't get frustrated and go, really, Mark? You're asking again? Just the opposite. He delights in your asking. He gives you wisdom. So as you walk through trials, you see it from God's perspective, and you can have joy. Now sometimes, the way he will give you wisdom is right from his word, from the Bible. In fact, I'd say that's the main way. As you're reading something in Scripture, a story speaks to your situation, or a verse you memorize comes back to your mind to give you God's viewpoint or God's perspective on life and on your particular situation in particular. And sometimes it's the Holy Spirit just reminding you of what's true about God that that He won't uh, that He that 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 he, He doesn't live His ways aren't the world's ways. That God's ways are higher and that we can trust His ways because He, because we have learned that He is trustworthy and we can trust Him. And the Spirit reminds us of that sometimes in the, the darkest of days. His perspectives are our wisdom. And He loves to help us see life according to His wisdom. Now friends, to me, I think of that and I think that's amazing news. I don't have to be the smartest person in the world, but I can be the wisest in the room if I understand God's perspective on a situation. It's good news. God wants to help us walk through life, good times and bad times, with wisdom that is beyond human learning. And that's how I want to live. Isn't that how you want to live? Amen. Now let's look at one more thing about this today that James writes about. James says that God loves to share his wisdom, but he says something a little bit alarming. He says, but some won't get it. Look at verses 6 through 8. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James says to receive wisdom, one has to ask in faith. To not be double-minded. Now here's the deal. What in the world is that all about? Is he saying that if you ever feel doubt in your mind or your soul during a hard time, that God won't help you to walk through it with his perspective, which can then lead to joy? Is that what he's saying? I'll tell you that's not what he's saying. James here is doing something specific. He is describing the person who won't receive the wisdom of God because they actually refuse to accept the wisdom of God. This is what I mean. James describes them, he says, as double-minded. Another way, matter of fact, the literal translation of that, the way to express that is to say they are double-souled. Double-souled. Indicating a divided loyalty. The double-minded or double-souled person is caught between being God-centered and being self-centered. They have really never settled who is God in their life. 
Yeah, sure, maybe they go to church. Maybe they go to Portview. I don't know. Maybe they serve. Maybe they serve a lot. Maybe they give. Maybe they give a lot. But who is God? Whose way will they really follow, especially when it gets difficult? That issue has never really been settled. Maybe on the surface they seem to walk with God, but under the surface it's unsettled. Their life is like a boat bobbing on the sea. That's the imagery he gives us here. No certainty that God's way is really best. Remember we're talking about God's perspective. There's no certainty in their heart and their mind that God's way is really best. You say, this is the person that says to me, well, pastor, I think. And I go, but what you think is contrary to the word of God, and they still act that way. Friends, wisdom says, God says it, act that way. But this person doesn't do that. You know what they are not? They're not all in. Now, I'm not a poker player, okay? But I've watched enough westerns on TV. This is how it goes. You're in a dusty old saloon somewhere. Six guns are on your side. You're sitting there. There's a guy with a patch on his eye next to you. You're on this table and you're playing poker. Everybody's laying down their cards, making bets. And it comes to the one guy. He's got all aces. He's got a good hand. This is what he says. He takes his pile of money and he pushes it to the center of the table. And he says, all in. They've got to either be all in, put all their money and match it, or, or they've got to be out. And he puts it all in. Why? Because he bets all that he has in the belief that the one hand he has can't be beat. He's all in. Friends, in essence, that's what James is talking about here. When a person is not all in with Jesus, they will be unsettled as a ship on the sea. Something happens, should I do it God's way or should I just do it my way? So when adversity hits, they see life from their limited, tainted perspective because all people have limited, tainted perspectives. I don't care how many degrees you have with your name. All people have limited, tainted perspective. So then there's no wisdom. No ability to see that that the tapestry of their life is creating something beautiful. They only see the bottom. They only see the hurt and the pain and they conclude all kinds of wrong things about God and have wrong beliefs and narratives about God. It's not that God won't give them wisdom. It's that they refuse to really accept it because they don't really trust that God's way is best. So they don't look to God. They're not all in. That's what James is talking about with that group of people. And friends, I think this is the perfect place to stop with the idea of what it means to be all in. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this, are we really all in with Jesus? Am I double-souled, hedging my bets? book of Hebrews talks about people who sacrifice again this Christ because they... Uh, they, they go back to their old life. It talks about this, that they said they accepted Jesus, but then they go off and they still are sacrificing um, animals in the temples just in case Jesus isn't really right. That's what this is talking about. Are we all in? The question we need to ask ourselves is, you know, am I double-souled? Still haven't settled who is Lord in my life. And I'm not saying you haven't even said, I'm not saying you, you're not even saved. 
but you're not really walking fully with the Lord. Maybe you don't know the Lord at all. But maybe you're just saying, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm wanting to go with Jesus, but I really trust myself more than him. Friends, can I tell you from a former totally self-willed man that life is much better with Jesus in charge? Living life saying, I want to live by your wisdom, God, and sometimes your wisdom doesn't make sense to my wisdom. To be first, I've got to be last. If I want to be a leader, I've got to serve. If I want to give, I've got to, if I want to get, I've got to give. All these things that seem contrary. But God, your wisdom is right, and my perspective often is wrong. And I'm going to choose to live by your wisdom, not my perspective. And I'm telling you, living life from his perspective is a much better, more wonderful way to live. And it results in joy in the good times and joy in the bad times. Isn't it amazing what he says to all of us? Saying he's here all the time. He's saying, just ask. If you lack wisdom, I'm here for you. I'm here all the time available to you, just say, God, I want to be all in and ask for his perspective. So maybe we need to do some asking today. We need to be asking for wisdom. And maybe we need to ask, maybe somebody needs to say, Lord, I need to ask you to welcome me into your family. See, because here's the deal. God is here for you. He's here for me. He's talking about There's this joy we can have in the midst of difficulty. But you've got to have my wisdom. To have my wisdom, you've got to be in my family. And here's the deal. That's all about asking also. It's about saying, Jesus, I want to be all in. Do you have all the answers? Nope. Do you have all the strength? Nope. He doesn't mind. He just says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Ask is what he said. Would you stand with me this morning? If you know that you're, you know, you're a child of God and you have a situation going on in your life that you're just, you're just confused and you're, man, you're shaken, what I want to challenge you to do today is before you walk out and go get pasta, you spend a few minutes with the Lord, you just ask. Say, God, show me your perspective. I don't care what Uncle Frank says or Aunt Louie or whoever else, what do you say about it? I don't need to run to pastor. I need to run to Jesus. What do you say about it? Sit with him for a while. He's going to bring something to your mind, probably from the Word of God. He's going to challenge you to go a certain verse or do something like that. Spirit's going to remind you who he is. Let him do that for you today. But maybe you're here today and you know this. And the only people who know this are you and God. You know this. You're not really in the family of God. It didn't say you don't go to church. I'm saying you're not really in the family of God. That you've never opened up your life and said, Jesus, I hear you, you know, you're calling me. And that's the only reason you would be thinking this way today is there's something going on inside of you saying, I need Jesus. And you're saying, but today I want to say yes to God. As he calls my name, deep inside my heart, he calls my name, I want to say yes, Lord. I'm asking you to come into my life. I'm asking you to to wash away all the junk in my life. I'm asking you to heal me and make me brand new. And on this day, Lord, I want to make you Lord and God. And I want to come underneath you. See, this is how we live. We live, I'm up here. God's down here somewhere. That's what James was talking about. It's the the double-souled person. But we can make the switch. 
and say, Jesus, I want you to be Savior. I want you to be Lord. I want to follow you. That's what he describes Christians as followers. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know life from your perspective. If that's you today, you can do that. I'm going to invite us to do something as a church family. Would you just all close your eyes with me again today? We did it earlier for a, a poem. Just close your eyes. And I simply want to ask this question. Our eyes are closed, our heads are closed, our heads are bowed. If you're in this place today and, and you are ready to ask Jesus to come into your life, you want to be all in, and you say, I want Jesus to be the Savior and Lord of my life, and today I'm, I'm calling out to Him and I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. If you're ready to do that today, I want you to raise up your hand. When I see your hand, I'm going to tell you to put it down. I just want to, I don't want to embarrass your call. I just want to see who. All right? You put your hands down. Anybody else? Say, I'm ready. You can keep your hands up if you want. I'm just saying I don't want to embarrass you. And just one more second. You say, I, I know I need Christ and I'm ready today. I'm going to invite the whole church to join with us today. Those of you who raise your hands, I want you just to pray this from the depths of your heart. Nothing magical about the words. It's just our talking to the Lord who's right here listening, interacting. Matter of fact, he's the initiator of what's going on. He's the one active in your spirit, your soul right now. We're just going to talk to him. Would you pray with me, the whole church? Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. And today, I feel you pulling me. And I know I need you. So today, I ask you to come into my life. I surrender my old life. I walk away from it. And from this day forward, I want to follow you. Jesus, I need help. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come into my life, to fill me, and to empower me so that I can live the life that you want. And this I know, what you want most is just my heart. So today, I give myself to you. I'm all in, Jesus, from this day forward.